Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And here we are for the fourth time to discuss Njal Saga. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Four episodes. As many episodes on this saga as there are bodily humors in Hippocratic Medicine. <laughs> and one for each of the cardinal directions now, or uh, if we want to be relevant to what we're actually doing, as many as there are quarter courts in Iceland. Oh, very nice. Yes. Um, and at the end of this episode... We're still going to be a hair short of the halfway point in the saga. <laughs> it's just incredible. Well, you know, we, we made the decision that we didn't want these episodes to get too long. So a section that was originally meant to be one episode suddenly became two. Yeah, uh, this was supposed to be part of the third episode devoted to Nial, but we went so long talking about, I don't know, everything from horse fights to famine to blood-soaked ambushes to cheese theft – we're not made of stone here. No. You can't give us a crime uncovered by the forensic reconstruction of a wheel of cheese and not expect us to savor the moment. Absolutely. And and rather than cut all of that, uh, you know, we, we ended up stopping the last recording after the Battle of Ranga River. Um, in that ambush, you'll remember Gunnar and his brothers killed over a dozen of their enemies, uh, but at a great cost since Hjort, Gunnar's youngest brother, was also killed. Right, so we should offer a very brief reminder of what happened last time, since there was enough that we couldn't shut up about it. All right, uh, fingers in the ears. Last time on Njal's Saga. Njal and Gunnar enjoyed the renewal of their friendship despite their wives' attempts to break them apart. But soon after, the land was beset by... Famine. Gunnar's generosity to others led to an empty pantry in his own home. When his neighbor Otkil refused to sell him food, Gunnar's wife Halgoth had Otkil's food stolen. Gunnar, angry at Halgoth's dishonesty, slapped her. A blow Halgoth swore she would one day avenge. Then we followed Gunnar's career as he learned the price of success. Gunnar was beset on all sides, forced to fend off the jealousies and weapons of those who envied his wealth and his fame. First, Otkel's family, and then a combined force of two local clans tried to destroy Gunnar. But a combination of Gunnar's fighting strength and his friend Njal's good advice see him through. But the latest attack has ended in tragedy, with Gunnar's younger brother Hjort killed in an ambush at Ranga River, in which 14 would-be assassins were also killed. Join us now as we witness the consequences of those killings in our return to Njal's saga. Ah, see? That pretty much sums it up. Yeah, whenever we do one of those, it makes me wonder why we take so long to get through the saga during the actual episodes. Yeah. We're capable of being brief, damn it. We are, but, uh, you know, brevity doesn't pay. Mm. And honestly, this saga doesn't lend itself to brevity. As we've said, it's the longest of all the family sagas, and it's shaping up to be a nine or ten episode project to go through it all. John, do you know, uh, I just posted right before we started recording uh, our part three, Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. I noticed before we started that uh, Scott Sprague contacted us, and he wondered if we're going to run out of alphabetic letters to uh, label these episodes. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, we're still skipping a lot of details and a lot of commentary as we go through this. Yeah, no, I want to emphasize that we actually do cut stuff out of the saga. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy and I probably spend as much time talking over things that don't end up in the podcast as we do actually recording the thing. That's probably true, which is, I don't know if that's sad or good or whatever, but uh, right. it's true. It uh, shows that we have some discretion. Yeah. Uh, we, we are ending up with some great notes about these things, though, for when we teach them or write about them. So I kind of like this. Yeah. Well, we want to leave a few surprises for you to discover when you read the saga for yourself. Of course. Now, uh, should we get on with this episode? All right, tell the nice people what to expect. 
Having dispatched his enemies at the ambush on Ranga River, Gunnar must answer for the deaths of 14 men in court. Lurking in the shadows and eager to destroy his mortal enemy is Gunnar's cousin, Morth Valgurdsson. But with his loyal friend Njal on the case, Gunnar is in good hands. And if Morth can't get Gunnar outlawed at the All Thing, he'll just have to figure out another way to bring down Iceland's most dashing hero. Hanging over this entire episode is a grim prophecy from Njal, who warns Gunnar against killing two men in the same bloodline and breaking settlements. If he can abide by these simple rules, Gunnar will live to an old age. But, word bith fuller and Gunnar is soon drawn into conflict once again through the careful plotting of Morth. Another ambush is organized, this time placing Thorger Otkelsen directly in the path of Gunnar's weapons. If Gunnar can avoid killing the son of Otkel, he might just get out of this saga alive. But if Thorger falls by Gunnar's sword, then the dark cloud of Njal's prophecy grows more ominous. Will Gunnar survive this section of the saga? Or will his story come to a tragic end? Find out in part four of Njal's Saga, chapter 64 to 77. What we're going to be seeing this time out is the expanding scope of Njal's saga. Uh, Robert Cook says of this saga that it's not only a law saga, it is an all-thing saga. In other words, it's a saga with many of its important events taking place at the all-thing, uh, but also implying that the saga's events are felt all over Iceland, which is cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. In this section, we're starting to see Gunnar's problems spilling out of the southern quarter, where he and his enemies actually live, and drawing in chieftains from the western and northern quarters, and increasingly mm-hmm. we'll see his cases have to go all the way to the all-thing to be resolved. Right, right. Uh, Stefan Einerson believes that one of the author's greatest strengths is his way of conjuring up the colorful life of the all-thing. Mm. There's pageantry with heroes recently returned from making their fortunes and fame abroad. Another year, the entire all-thing is in turmoil through legal bouts. And at times, there's recourse to more tangible weapons and pandemonium breaks out. Well, we'll save the pandemonium for another episode, but it's definitely true that our story has spilled out beyond the boundaries of a usual regional saga. And once Mm -hmm. the adversaries in a feud are too powerful or too widely spaced for a single regional assembly to contain them, the all thing is the logical place to get disagreements resolved. Or not resolved. Yeah. We're also starting to see feuds that are rocketing out of control with island-wide consequences. Um. As we've gone along, we've been offering the disclaimer that if you're new to the podcast, you should probably go back and start at the beginning of the show. Or at least at the beginning of this saga. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's especially true this time, since we're going to be picking up with the consequences of the ambush at Ranga River. So right in the middle of one of these cases we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, if you can, start back at the beginning and learn about everything that's led us up to this point. And for the rest of you, well, buckle your seatbelts. We're about to get into the action. <laughs> Part 15. With law, our land shall rise. Like anyone who's just found himself responsible for killing 14 people, (laughs) (laughs) Gunnar's first move is to get himself a good lawyer. (laughs) Well, uh, fortunately for him, he knows the best lawyer in Iceland. But uh, this case is going to test even Njal's intellectual powers. The problem is that even when a person is attacked... 
the deaths of his attackers are still a legal matter. Right, which makes sense, but only if we stop thinking about this from a modern criminal law perspective. Yes. Right. The point of Icelandic law was to minimize unnecessary bloodshed while maintaining the rights of the individual to safeguard his rights. Right? The law isn't designed to enforce any abstracted sense of moral right. Uh, in other words, the law isn't primarily about why a murder happened or who done it. Exactly. Well, it, it does have some elements of those concerns, though. So sure, it should, sure, it, it does. does that. Right. But primarily, it's a tool to determine the appropriate reparations that will allow both sides to go away content. When someone is killed, regardless of why or how, the dead person's family can seek redress for the loss. Mm -hmm. And with so many deaths suddenly to answer for, Gunnar is potentially in serious legal trouble, even though he was the victim. Absolutely right. And I, I think we mentioned last time that William Ian Miller describes this all as, as a gift exchange culture. You, yes. I, I gift you the death of your relative. You're going <laughs> to you're going to pay me back in some way, shape or form. Right. So right. Um, there's that exchange going on. But, right. uh, you know, while we've been gassing on about legal history, uh, Njal <laughs> has cleverly thought of a plan. I'm going to ignore your insult. Explain the plan. Well, I, I, I really don't want to because it's it's kind, <laughs> it's kind of really complicated. I don't know if we can do it here. All right, sum it up then. Sum it up. That's supposed to be. That's really easy. I can do that. <laughs> I'm gonna sit here and have a sip of my beer while you do that. All right, you do that. Uh, well, Njal knows about pretty much every legal case in Iceland, so that's one of the things that makes him a good lawyer is knowing mm-hmm. case histories. Um, right. And it's nothing's written down either, which is really the impressive right. part of this. His plan is to collect the rights to as many pending cases against the surviving ambushers as possible. He's going to accuse the dead ambushers of various misdeeds. He's going to then reassign Hjort's death to Cole Ailson and prepare a complicated legal smokescreen that's going to allow Gunnar to then sue Thorgir over the attack. It's really brilliant. Right. And the amazing thing is that that was summing it up briefly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a moment where we see Njal's legal genius at work. Right? He's not only setting the stage for Gunnar's defense, he's planning a counterattack and anticipating the strategies of the ambush's lawyers. It's really a virtuosic display. And it's a good thing that Gunnar has Njal's help because the ambushers have a lawyer of their own. Gunnar's vile cousin, Mor the Valgardarsson. We hate that guy. Well, there's not a lot to like about the guy. It's, it's, it, this is a slightly complicated situation. Um, Thorgir Starkatherson uh, wants Morth to help, but Morth doesn't want to be directly involved, since that runs counter to his usual strategy of hiding behind other people. Mm-hmm. But he draws Gizer the White in by marrying Gizer's daughter Thorkatla, and that draws in Ger the Gothi. So Morth gains some cover for himself, and in doing so, builds a strong coalition against Gunnar. More or less, yeah. Yeah. Um, Thorgir and Morth coordinate a set of lawsuits against Gunnar, but their moves are essentially what Njal had expected them to do. Yeah. And when the suits go forward, Morth raises one objection after another, but Njal schools him repeatedly on fine points of legal procedure. And it's a really satisfying moment. It really is. Yeah. And, and it's also a good look at just why everyone's in awe of Njal's legal skills. And, and from a historical and literary perspective, it makes the saga really cool. Mm-hmm. You're seeing the inner workings of a legal system right. uh, that's, that's you know, centuries old. You're absolutely right. And the thing that's happening is that uh, – people talk about this all, all the time. Uh, Njal is – sometimes what he's doing is he's parroting uh, paraphrases of entire sections of the law code. Yeah. Right? The author is just drawing out actual sort of uh, written law, putting it in Njal's mouth in all of its detail. And later on, he'll do the same thing for Njal's protege. Uh, when that time comes, that sometimes the author is in over his head when it comes to the law 
And so he's relying on written law to show us how good Nyal is. Which is amazing from a literary historical perspective that we can mm-hmm. go into this text and see quoting of a text that we might not necessarily have if the right. saga didn't exist. Right. It's pretty exciting for guys like John and me. It is. Um, but what what uh, makes this whole section also really cool is that um, it's not just that Nyal is a better speech maker. He also knows the ins and outs of the law in such such great detail. Right. In effect, I think Nyal well, is kind of the he, he's yes. the he's the Bill Belichick of Icelandic law. If you want to think about it oh, that way, right? Oh, see, now you're just trying to upset me. No, I love Bill Belichick. Um, I'm going to ignore you for right now. Uh, for listeners who aren't interested <laughs> in American football, uh, Bill Belichick is the greatest coach of his generation. And there are a lot of jealous people out there who hate him primarily because he doesn't coach for their team. But I think I do know where you're going with this, so explain your analogy. Well, I just want to point out that Bill Belichick did used to coach my team. That's a good point, actually. But we kicked him to the curb like we do in so many other coaches. So wisely, may I say. Yeah. But back to Njal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Njal's legal skills are all about manipulating the law's details, much like mm-hmm. one could argue Bill Belichick does with the NFL's rules. Fair enough. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise, I don't have a problem with what Njal is doing. Njal is mm-hmm. simply better at seeing the spots where the law creates assumptions in other people. And he's able to use those assumptions against his opponents. It's a good mm-hmm. move. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Uh, Njal knows the loopholes, loopholes, and he knows how to exploit them. Right. And in this case, Morth is operating like a skilled but unimaginative law expert. Mm-hmm. He assumes that the obvious moves are the only moves. But Njal eats people like that for breakfast. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's summed up uh, at the end of their debate when Morth concedes, what you say is according to the law, but it's hard to accept. I just love every time someone who's like unlikable comes into the saga, you either give them a really gravelly mean voice or the really nerdy whatever that voice was, (laughs) nasally kind of thing. So I just wonder if you ever meet someone in real life that has a voice like that. Do you automatically assume that they're a bad person? I assume they're evil, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I assume they're a crafty lawyer. Oh, hey there, John. How you doing? Ah! Oh, you're up to no good. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> I can't trust you. Uh, anyway. your wallet. <laughs> at this point, a man named Hjalti Skegison steps out of the crowd and offers to help spearhead a negotiation that's going to settle the suits, which right. is cool. Right. Um, now, Hjalti's an interesting guy. Uh, we saw him briefly way back in Erbidja's saga when he was part of a group of men who helped push the conversion to Christianity. He's Gizur the White's son-in-law, although that's not actually stated in this saga. And his presence here is one of the first hints we get that the conversion is coming up later in the story. That's right, because Gizur is another of the early adopters of Christianity in Iceland. Right. But what's interesting here is that Hjalti is son-in-law to Gizur, and by extension, brother-in-law to Morth now, because Morth has married Gizur's daughter. Why would Gunnar trust this guy to make a settlement? Well, he's hardly getting a lot of support from Morth, who's his actual relative, but I mm-hmm. see your point. Gunnar shows his high-mindedness here, which is nice. Hjalti hasn't been involved in any of the aggression against Gunnar, and Gunnar agrees to let Hjalti spearhead this negotiation if Hjalti promises never to act against Gunnar in any future feud. Now, that's a good move if he thinks he can trust Hjalti not to screw him over on the settlement. Yeah. But he can assure that by stipulating that the other members of the settlement committee are Njal and Osgrim Elida Grimson. That's pretty smart. In the end, everything is settled out pretty well for Gunnar. All those lawsuits Njal had him collect are used to offset several killings. 
Hjort's death offsets the deaths of Cole and Thorir, and the remaining men are to be compensated by only half their legal worth. Yeah, it's a really good deal for Gunnar, all things considered. Oh, it's so good that the law has essentially failed, which is (laughs) kind of problematic. Again, that's hard to make sense of from a modern perspective, but the job of the law is to end feuds. Mm -hmm. Instead, Thorgir Starkotherson and Morth have to leave the court embarrassed and more determined than ever to take Gunnar down. This is a major, major shame for them. Right. Uh, And this is starting to feel like a bit of an unhealthy obsession on their part. Well, it's undeniable that Gunnar has, at least at this point, killed a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Regardless of how good his reasons may have been, he's left a trail of broken families in his wake, despite being ambushed. Well, and right on cue, the saga reintroduces Thorger Otkelsen, the son of Otkel Skarfason. Uh, You mean Otkel, the guy who refused Gunnar during the famine and was killed by Gunnar a few chapters back? That guy, yeah. Uh, Thorger Otkelsen has grown up to be a well-liked man. But he's a bit naive. Well, he is, but he's also got a legitimate reason to hate Gunnar. Remember, Gunnar killed Thorgir's father and both of his uncles. True. But he's not exactly out hunting for revenge on his own. Thorgir, Starkotherson, and Morth decide they can use Ockelson to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Andy, I can't believe we're four episodes into Njal Saga before we get to say this, but Morth has a cunning plan. Oh, I've missed those. I love a cunning plan. I know you do. The plan involves the fact that for whatever reason, Morth knows the warning Njal gave Gunnar about not killing twice in the same bloodline. I, I, I want to know how he found out about that. I mean, this is why you check to make sure no one's listening before you tell someone about a future in which they're dead. So who, who squealed? <laughs> Where did this come from? Well, we don't know. Morth is supposed to be a pretty good lawyer, not in Yal's league, but good. Maybe he's got a bit of precognitive power himself. Oh, like every lawyer has precognitive abilities? I mean, a little bit in this saga. <laughs> Come on. Uh, maybe one of the servants has been spreading rumors. Also possible. Probably yeah. more likely. But let me explain the plan. Morth and Thorger Starkotherson bring in Thorger Otkelson as part of a conspiracy to kill Gunnar. Yes. But secretly... Starkotherson is planning to hold back in the fight, hmm. allowing Gunnar to kill Otkil's son and therefore to kill twice in the same bloodline. Which he's not supposed to do. Right. And Morth, of course, will be nowhere near the fighting. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah, but he is masterminding the long con here, which is mm-hmm. kind of brilliant. Morth misrepresents some of Gunnar's business dealings to convince both of the Thorgears. Um, and I'm going to use their 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 father's names to kind of yeah, help too many clarify orders. this. Um, th- th- that they have a legal grievance against him. And Starkotherson spends an entire year chumming up to Otkelson, drawing him into the fold. Only then does he ask Otkelson to help kill Gunnar. Right. So Thorgir Starkotherson is conning Thorgir Otkelson, and Morth's conning both of them. Yes. I mean, it's straight out of a movie. It's brilliant stuff. Yeah. Um, and none of them are very bright at all. <laughs> right. Well, the great tragedy of Gunnar's life is that at this point, he's dealing with men who have a legitimate grievance against him. I mean, in this case, we're talking about a well-liked young man whose father Gunnar killed. Yes. No matter how go- good Gunnar's reasons were for those killings, avenging your father's death is taken very seriously in this culture. Of course it is. And in, in, in our culture as well. Right. <laughs> Remember, in our first saga brief, we talked about the fact that every instance we could find of the Blood Eagle was a case of a son avenging his father. Oh, right, right, right. On the other hand, this attempt to kill Gunnar is really no Blood Eagle. No, it's 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 more of a damp pigeon. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. The two Thorgirs put together an attacking force of more than 20 men. And then they ride to the woods near Gunnar's home in Hlitherendi. Mm. But they're spotted by a shepherd who works for Skarpathen, and the shepherd reports the men to Njal. Right. Now, Njal is delighted by this. As we've said, Njal often seems to be picking his way among several possible futures that his precognition reveals to him. In this case, the Thorgirs have played into the best possible outcome for Gunnar. As Njal says, this is moving along nicely now. They'll gain nothing in this venture and lose much. That's kind of cool. I just like that he's sitting mm-hmm. there thinking about the future that he knows. Yep. He's just kind of like picking at the threads. Yeah. Yeah. Well, significantly, this is an opportunity for Njal to avoid bloodshed entirely. He mm-hmm. rides to the woods and terrifies the Thorgirs. What's this journey for? Gunnar's not a man to be pushed around, you know. You'd better know that Gunnar is gathering his men and he will soon be here to kill you if you don't clear out and go home. Right. And they're terrified. They beat Cheeks out of the woods and go back to their homes to hide. Which is weird because they did come out there to kill Gunnar. Yes. But, you know. And they have 20 men. So, like, you know, they say, well, Gunnar's coming. Well, we want him to come because we came out right. here to kill him. But right. but if Gunnar's coming, we're going to leave. <laughs> right. I guess that's because it is Gunnar. They have a right. good reason to be scared given his sure. reputation. Uh, ultimately, Njal uses that fear to convince the Thorgirs to let him arbitrate a settlement with Gunnar over this utter embarrassment of an assassination yeah. attempt. Mor is furious that they agree to it and tries to stop the settlement from going forward. But Njal once again outfaces Morth and then says, this is famous, With law our land shall rise, but it will perish with lawlessness. Yes, and this is an iconic line. And it's impossible not to hear a commentary on the author's more recent past. The Iceland that the sagas celebrate did perish with lawlessness in the 12th and 13th centuries. And we talked a bit about that in episode 1B, uh, B, yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, the tricky part, I think, is that Njal himself is a master of manipulating the intent of the law when it ser- suits his purposes. Mm-hmm. But you made that Bill Belichick analogy earlier. See? Yeah, you knew I was right about that. Right. No, I don't disagree with your point. Yeah. But it does mean that Njal is being slightly disingenuous here. Law, in general, is a great foundation to build a country on, but it's also putty in the hands of a lawyer like Njal. I think so. And Njal likes the law, at least in part because it's a weapon that he can wield effectively, even without right. a beard. <laughs> well, we're certainly going to see it later in this saga that Njal's respect for the law does not stop him from messing with it when it suits him. Yes. Part 16. The Battle of Thorgir's Fjord. So what we've seen leading up to this is Njal seriously embarrassing more in the law twice in succession. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Gunnar's reputation is so intimidating that 24 men pee themselves when they think he knows they're planning to attack him. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. So to go back to what we were saying last episode, both of these guys are alpha males of their chosen areas of masculine performance, even though both are vulnerable to attacks on that masculinity. Right. Although it might be useful to push that further away from masculinity specifically and more toward the performance part. Okay, but if we're going to talk about this, keep it short, right? We've got a lot of saga to cover here. Okay. Well, I've been wanting to mention that a few readers have argued that there are more complex power dynamics going on in the sagas than can be explained by simple gender binaries. Oh, yeah. I've seen some of this. Uh, Carol Clover's even suggested that it might be useful to think of sex identity in the saga, not primarily in terms of a privileged male, underprivileged female duality, mm-hmm. but in terms of capability. Yeah, I like that. As as Carl Phelps did puts it, what matters is an individual's adequacy or inadequacy 
in relation to a single ideal. Yeah, and that fits nicely with what we were saying before. Everyone, even Gunnar, has secret worries about inadequacy. It suggests that they're measuring themselves against some kind of cultural ideal. Exactly. Uh, Now, that ideal privileges traditionally male characteristics, but not characteristics that are inherent to maleness. Men could and did fail to meet the standard that defined approved gender ideals. Yeah, and women could and did meet those standards. Right. So, in other words, a set of standards about character are the basis for social approval of gender. Many men and the few women who met those standards were in one category, while everyone else, including most women, nearly all children and elderly people, and also men who failed to conform to social standards, were in a second and lower category. More or less. I don't personally endorse treating the one-gender model as though it represents a conscious medieval worldview, but I think it's useful as a way of thinking about social responses. What's fascinating is that it suggests that in some circumstances, men were actually more vulnerable to social censure for their gender performance than women were. Hmm. Obviously, it's a privileged position to be male-identified in this culture, but it comes with the danger of suffering public disapprobation if you fail to be male properly. Disapprobation. Well, there you go, everybody. Hope you like that one. It's a perfectly cromulent word. Uh, I think you've done that before. Uh, but, you know, it, it certainly fits what we've been talking about with Njal and Gunnar. They're both undeniably successful. Uh, they're both at the top of their fields. But they both failed to conform to some aspect of the social ideal of performed masculinity. Right, which means they feel that pushback from their culture over their nonconformity. Okay. So in Njal's case, the beardless insult is particularly damaging because he's already taken a less obvious route to the male ideal. He's a powerful lawyer and not a fighter. He doesn't go traveling uh, overseas to collect things. Um, He doesn't really do any of that. Um, In fact, I I don't remember whether we've already brought this up, but Njol never even lifts a weapon in the entire saga. That's true. Uh, And it means that his masculinity is already vulnerable on one front. Mm -hmm. The old beardless nickname opens up a second weakness. And yet at the same time, a line like, with laws our country shall be built up, asserts the nation-building strength of Njal's breed of man. And post-conversion Iceland hopes to promote this new breed of man as its ideal. Exactly. But Gunnar approaches that ideal from a different direction. He's a Mm -hmm. physical specimen, handsome, beautiful pecs, and he's generally thought to be a good man as well. But uh, his reluctance to involve himself in trouble is often perceived as a weakness by others. Although, in fairness, people who misjudge him that way often end up dead. Oh, yes, they do. Uh, now, I believe you mentioned a battle. Can we... Ah, right. Okay, so the Thorgirs are annoyed about their humiliation. And more is still pushing them to attack Gunnar. So they arrange a new ambush, this time with 25 men. Ah, see, so 25 are enough to attack Gunnar, but 24 men are not. Well, again, these two aren't the brightest bulbs in the tulip mania. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, this time they actually managed to attack, which is nice. Right. Once again, the attack occurs near the Ranga River. And Gunnar and Kolskegi are able to ride to a defensible location before the ambushers can attack. Yeah, there's a pattern developing here. Again, these guys are tenacious, but they're also not bright. Gunnar mows several down with arrows before the brawl starts. But with only two defenders, the Hamundersons are hard-pressed right away. I'll read a bit from the description of the battle here. Mm-hmm. In the forefront of the attack was Onund the Fair, a kinsman of Thorger Otkelsen. Gunnar thrust at him with his halberd. It struck his shield, split it in two, and stabbed through him. 
Ogmund Floki rushed at Gunnar from behind, but Kolskegi saw this and cut off both Ogmund's legs with a single sword swing. Then he pushed Ogmund out into the river, and he drowned. And then the fighting became fierce. Then it became fierce. Yeah, right? It, it, it's an ugly fight. Uh, the amazing thing is that the author's not joking. Uh, it does get fierce at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brothers are in real trouble, and they're actually fighting hard just to keep their enemies at bay. Well, fortunately for them, there's still a subplot going on here. Right. Thorgeir Starkotherson doesn't actually expect to be able to kill them in this fight. Right. He's still trying to enact Morv's damp pigeon plan from earlier. The one where he gets Gunnar to kill two men in the same lineage. That one, yeah. Uh, so he turns to his fellow Thorgeir and co-conspirator Thorgeir Atkelson and says, Well, there's not much sign that you have a father to avenge. It's true I haven't made much progress, but you haven't exactly been close on my heels. And now I won't take any more of your taunts. And then he rushes forward to challenge Gunnar. Now, we've already said a bit about how unscrupulous and shady this plan is. And Otkelson's right. There's something particularly galling about Starkatherson mocking him for doing nothing when Starkatherson's got two brothers to avenge. Well, you know, we said before, avenging a father is the highest responsibility. You've got to do it. Right. I don't think that excuses Starkatherson from his own blood did against Gunnar. But on the other hand, he is working on his revenge. It's just that his path to revenge involves sacrificing Otkelson to get the fates aligned against Gunnar. True, but uh, let's not let him off the hook just yet. This is an honorless thing to do. Oh, absolutely it is. Shame on you, Thorgir. Shame. Shame. So now that Thorgir Otkelson has been goaded into the front of the battle, he charges at Gunnar and manages to thrust a spear through Gunnar's shield arm. Out. Yes, but Gunnar impales him on his halberd and flings him out into the river. Woo-hoo. It just would be so cool to see. Mm. Not that I, you know, encourage death and flinging bodies well, into rivers, you know. but... But this is Gunnar's, you know, if Gunnar were an 80s wrestler, this would be his signature move. <laughs> right, yes, the exactly. spearing somebody on the halberd spike, lifting him up in the air, and then throwing them out into the river is kind of his thing. Yeah, he puts his hand to his ear, waits for the crowd to cheer, and then off they go. <laughs> they call it the Hitherendi pole vault. <laughs> Now, Thorgir's body floats downriver until it catches on some rocks. Those rocks come to be known as Thorgir's Ford. Ah, uh, last poor fool. Well, you know, you know, he gets a Ford named after him, so it's not a total loss. It's kind of cool. <laughs> um, so as soon as Otkelson is dead, Thorgir, Starkatherson, and the other surviving attackers turn and flee. Another failed attack. I mean, you would think that they'd be tired of these. Right, but as we know, there's a method to the madness here. Right. Morth's advice to Thorgir was to do exactly this. Yes. All they had to do was get Gunnar to kill twice in the same bloodline. And now he's done that. That's not all. He also has to get Gunnar to break a settlement. And as I'm talking about this, I, I, I'm realizing that this is a pretty complicated prophecy. It, yeah, it is. You know, it really shouldn't be that hard for Gunnar to stay out of trouble here. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but Morth and Thorgir have already achieved step one. Mm-hmm. Right. Gunnar has now killed a father, Otgil, and his son, Thorgir. So the next step is to make a settlement over the killing. And then, mm-hmm. step three, they have to find a way to get Gunnar to break it. Yes. And then they've got to actually kill him still. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not denying that it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, so now Gunnar's got to go back to court and face the growing uneasiness about how many men he's killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mord's got powerful help again. His new father-in-law, Gizur the White, and Ger the Gothi will press the suit against Gunnar. And once again, Morth is going to stay safely out of the line of fire. Well, he's a sneaky little cuss, but you almost have to admire him. 
He's got the survival instincts of a cockroach. He's like Narfi if Narfi was actually good at what he should do. Yes, exactly. He's he's a competent Narfi. I can't think of anything more terrifying. <laughs> now, meanwhile, Gunnar, as usual, will have Njol on his side. Right, and usually that's enough, but Gizur is no slouch to the law either. And his accusation frames Gunnar as the aggressor in the fight. Mm, 25 men against two, and somehow Gunnar is the aggressor? Again? Yeah, that's the claim, yeah. But since it's preposterous on the face of it, Njal is able to use the jury to his advantage by getting them to agree that the Thorgears were trying to kill Gunnar at the time of the attack. Hey, that should be enough to destroy Geezer's case, but as we said before, mm-hmm. Gunnar's got a problem in that so many people at this point have lost a relative to him. Yeah, no, we saw the same thing happen to Bjorn the Hitterdahl champion in his saga. Yes. Right? Eventually, people just get tired of the killings even if the killer is acting in self-defense every time. And that's the thing. Bjorn, the Heaterdahl champion, and Finbogi, both of them are just so good at what they do that people kind of seek them out. Look at what you're doing. What? Now, you know it's true. Oh, just the blind blind support, the fanning of the flames for your own thing. Oh, give me a break. It's true, though. It's a good comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Finbogi keeps coming to mind because Gunnar is suffering from the same kind of thing that Finbogi suffered from. He's too powerful and he's too good at fighting and he's also too famous. And so people from all around come to kind of challenge him through jealousy. Right. And this is the result is that he has to kill the challengers or kill people that ambush him. And then that leads to more fighting and that leads to more fighting as he wins every single time. Right. And if you remember, uh, Bjorn had exactly the same problem in that he had a specific enemy who kept sort of ginning up uh, people against him, sending them off to die. And with this same kind of long-term plan in mind. Yeah. That eventually you build up so much hatred in the region – against this guy, even though every killing is justified, everyone eventually just decides no more of this. We have to get rid of this guy because we can't lose any more men. Exactly. Which is which is why you see uh Finbogi having to move so many times in Finbogi yes. saga. Yes, he, Finbogi avoids it because he's he's more nimble. He kinda moves before it gets too bad. Well it's not that Finbogi uh chooses to move, he's kinda forced to move because people say, well, Yeah, you're gonna keep killing everybody, so why don't you right. go somewhere else? Right. Oh anyway, ultimately Njol makes a calculated gamble. He agrees to arbitration in the hopes that a public rebuke of Gunnar, maybe even a sentence of minor outlawry, will help settle the growing ill will against him. Is that the judgment? More or less, yeah. Uh, Gunnar and Kolske have to pay a lump sum for all the deaths from the fight and then go abroad for three years. Right, so that's minor outlawry. Sort of. There's a stipulation that if they don't leave, they can be killed as outlaws, but only by Thorger Otkelson's relatives. Right, now that's a strange concession. Usually it's open season on outlaws. Yeah, but not this time. Uh, even though he brought the settlement about, Njal's still worried about it. Yeah. Uh, on the way home, he tells Gunnar, just as your first trip abroad brought you great honor, you will gain even more this time. It's pretty good. Then you will return home with great respect and live to be an old man. Uh-oh. And no one will be your equal. Hmm. But if you break this settlement, you will be killed in this land. And that will be a terrible thing for your friends to bear. Okay, readers. Or listeners, in this case, what do you think is going to happen? Right. So, you know, Njal's forecasting the future again. He's mm-hmm. already seen the conditions that will lead to Gunnar's death, and they're very close now. Gunnar can only escape his fate by carefully following the settlement that's been reached, even though it's a little bit strange. And mm-hmm. for his part, Gunnar does agree to obey the law. You know, I can't help but notice that Njal's ability to see the future is very specific. It always comes with like two 
possible paths, one of which means you'll die. <laughs> right. It's, there's always the, if you don't do this, you'll die. So do this other thing instead and don't die. It's very persuasive. I mean, I, I, right. I should try that with right. my kids. Uh, you should clean your room or you'll die. Or die. <laughs> I have seen two futures. In one, the dog is cleaned up in the backyard. In the other, you die. <laughs> right. Uh, so anyway, while the Hamundersons pack for the trip overseas, the saga digresses for a moment to tell us that several parties are making trips abroad. Uh, Gunnar and Kolskegi book passage out of Iceland with Arnfinnavik ship. Meanwhile, Thrain Sigvason, Gunnar's uncle-slash-son-in-law, <laughs> sails out with Hogni the White. And finally, Grimm and Helgi Njalsson, who have been very quiet this episode— decide to sail with Bard the Black and Olaf Kettleson. Now, those voyages are going to form a major part of the narrative for our next episode. For now, it's enough to note that the boys ask their father about the trip, and he says, Your travels will be troublesome, and that it's not clear that you'll hold on to your lives. There he is again. You'll die. Yeah, it's always. Uh, but he does say, You will earn honor and respect. That's still ominous. They're gonna, yes, I don't want to hear that news. And everyone else has bad news coming. But uh, for now, Gunnar makes the rounds of his friends, saying goodbye to all of them. Njal's place is his last stop, and then he and Kolskegi head out toward the ships. So everything is going smoothly for once? No, no, not at all. Of course not. No. Of course not. Uh, Gunnar's horse slips, and when Gunnar dismounts, he catches a glimpse of his home at Hlidarendi. Oh, no. And he says to himself... Lovely is the hillside. Never has it seemed so lovely to me as now. With its pale fields and mown meadows. And I will ride back home and not leave. What a time to discover the poetry of nature. And Kolskegi is as horrified as I am, by the way. Don't give your enemies the pleasure of breaking your agreement. I will not leave. And I wish you wouldn't either. I cannot be false to this agreement or any other. And this is the only thing that will separate us. Tell our mother that I don't expect to return to Iceland, for I will receive word of your death here, and then nothing will draw me back home. Yeah, so he sees the future too, right? Mm-hmm, and absolutely. And so the Homundersons part. Now this stumbling horse motif is something we've seen before. Uh, Eric the Red had the same thing happen to him when he was en route to a ship to the New World. Yes, good. But it's used to really touching effect here. Gunnar's words capture something of the universal love of home, and they've become among the most famous lines of the saga. But, poetic as they might be, Gunnar's sentiments mean that he's broken his settlement. And he's in Iceland illegally now. Mm-hmm. And since he's not about to start hiding like an outlaw, his enemies will know exactly where to find him. So, not good then? Not good. He needs to read an outlaw saga to figure this out. <laughs> Part 17, Gunnar's Last Stand. At this point, Gunnar's tragedy is close at hand, and he seems almost resigned to it, or or even eager to meet it. Mm. Over the next few months, he's going to stay at home, and he's going to refuse or ignore offers of help from his friends. His brother-in-law, Olaf Peacock, from Laxdala Saga, even mm-hmm. tries to move Gunnar to a farm in the west of Iceland. But unlike Finbogi, Gunnar won't move. Right. And then Njal argues with him, trying to convince him to at least take on some bodyguards. Should we just read this part? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. It's cool. All right. I'll do Njal. 
What I want is for my sons, Scarpathen and Hoskell, to come live with you and gamble their lives with yours. No, I don't want your sons slain for my sake. You don't deserve that from me. It won't matter. Once you're dead, the trouble will come to my sons anyway. That's not unlikely. But I wouldn't want it to come from me. That's the last conversation we get between these two friends. And even with the understated tone of the saga, you can hear the frustration and fear in Yal's words. Yes, well, the frustration isn't surprising. And Yal's been working for years to avoid this exact situation. Now he's in danger of losing his closest friend, mainly because of his friend's stubbornness not to do what he's supposed to do. <laughs> well, and the frustration for Njal and for us is that Gunnar has gone passive in the face of fate. Mm-hmm. Njal is still fighting a future that he can see with increasing clarity, but Gunnar accepts and I think even hastens his fate. Well, and that's a theme of many of the sagas. Einerson says, It is interesting to watch how the author moves his puppets on the chessboard of fate. Wow. I know, right? Uh, Einerson is a fine scholar, but that is an excruciatingly bad metaphor. Yes, but, uh, you know, we'll forgive him. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of that sort of crash test metaphor style myself on occasion, mm-hmm. and I applaud that one. Puppets <laughs> on the chessboard of fate. Uh, but go on. I can't wait to hear about the sun setting on the ticking clock of Gunnar's last ship sailing over the horizon. <laughs> can, I, can I get back to this? <laughs> I hope so. Okay. Try le- reading the tea leaves to learn which way the wind blows. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, so he goes on. Just as from the beginning, the author sees his heroes doomed to their tragic fate. In Yaw's benevolent wisdom, he maps the course for his good friend Gunnar. He fends and parries. Well, he's really, really trying here. <laughs> he fends and parries at every step, but all in vain. Fate marches on. Now, that's a little more purple than I usually like my prose, but uh, <laughs> if you dig through that, Einerson is actually onto something. We're dealing with fate as a classic epic theme, and the narrative is reaching its first major climax. Certainly. And by any metric, Njal Saga can measure up to the great tragedies of literature. We said in the first Njal episode that this saga can be favorably compared to any of the classics of literature, and this is part of the reason why. There's a buildup and an awareness of impending loss. And that gives this section real weight as a tragedy. Hmm. But I, I think I have to disagree with Einerson. Um, I think the author's real talent is in not allowing that literary ambition to overwhelm the story. The towering epic is there, but the narrative remains stubbornly unsentimental and continues to tell its story in these brief, understated scenes. Unlike Einerson's writing. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there's any question that this conversation works first and foremost because the friendship between Njal and Gunnar feels so consequential to both of them. And because of that, to the reader as well. Yeah, I agree. But I think this gets us into a related question about how readers approach the text and what they look for in it. There are a lot of good introductions out there to the history of what people have said about Njal's saga, and we've included some of those in the bibliography on the website. For now... I think we both see the friendship between Yal and Gunnar as a really well-fleshed-out and specific relationship. Right. I don't think these are archetypes, or at least they're not only and primarily archetypes. Mm -hmm. They're fully developed figures who care about each other, and I think we end up caring about them as a result. Right. I think that's something that really comes through at this point in the story. Yeah. We're so used to seeing the build-up to a major figure getting killed off in the sagas that it's possible to lose sight of the human tragedy being depicted. But not here. The author really does his job. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. Um, the old way of looking at this saga is as an expression of the author's reaction to the political and social forces of his day. 
And I think that pushes too far toward that archetype idea and those puppets on a chessboard. Uh, you know, I thought you liked the chess puppets. Well, as a metaphorical train wreck, sure. But I don't see acknowledging the workings of fate in this story as being, I don't know, antithetical to thinking of it in specific rather than archetypal terms. Hmm. Uh, this is a culture that thinks of luck and fate as being active in daily life. To be unlucky or doomed doesn't mean to lose agency entirely in the way that some myths seem to suggest. Wow, we're getting very English classy here, aren't we? Well, a little bit. Well, you know, we've talked a bit here and there about the the way universal forces like luck and fate function in the sagas. But there's another element to that. How a person faces his or her fate. Gunnar's been through a lot by now, and his Mm -hmm. resignation to his fate doesn't necessarily signal a weakness in his character. Right. Well, if he sees his fate as inevitable, he's at least facing it unflinchingly. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I don't necessarily know that we're meant to applaud his decisions, but it does mean that maybe we're not supposed to judge them harshly either. Yeah, and it's Njal, really, who's still fighting fate here. True, which is interesting given his own future. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's another story. Right now, we're seeing that both men place a lot of value in their friendship. And why not? I mean, these two have been through a lot. Although I would say Njal's done a lot more for Gunnar than Gunnar's done for Njal. <laughs> but, uh, well, Njal doesn't have a lot of friends. No. And, and over the course of their years together, they have become almost symbiotic. The ideal of male friendship, you mean that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah, of all relationships, really. But as you were suggesting a minute ago, in medieval Northern Europe, there's absolutely a literary tradition that celebrates male friendship. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to go a long way to find a better example than we see between these two. Sure. I mean, besides the classic C. Wallace Waleo model of friendship, they're a near-perfect team. Right? Their talents complement one another perfectly, and each appreciates the other fully. They're not the same, and they don't always see eye to eye, for that matter. But yeah. each is stronger for the other's friendship and support. Absolutely. And we see those literary characters all over the place. Uh, who else is there like that off the top of your head? Um, I, Holmes and Watson, maybe? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they, well, they're more asymmetrical, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. they, maybe Nero Wolf and Archie Goodman is better, but I don't know how many people know that one. I don't. <laughs> how about uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu? Oh, that's a good one. But that's another asymmetrical one, right? One's, a, one's essentially a god and one's a man. Uh, Fawford and the Grey Mouser? Uh, how about R2-D2 and C-3PO? <laughs> Assuming, of course, that R2-D2 is male identified. I don't really know. Sure, let's go with that one. <laughs> Since you stopped taking this seriously. <laughs> Actually, uh, you know, once you get into movies, there's a whole buddy movie trope. There's a long list there. It's true. Uh, but the story of how the perfect friendship model goes from being, I don't know, male identified in early literature to female identified in the Western novel – Back to male identify the 20th century. Whoa, whoa, it's a little whoa, bit- whoa, whoa, whoa. That's way too long a story to get started on here. That's you a know, whole that, other podcast. That's the point I was making. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, we'll talk about tropes another time in another podcast. But let's get back to Njol and Gunnar. It's interesting to me that this final conversation, where the two of them are essentially saying goodbye, uh, they, they focus on protecting each other's legacy through their children. Hmm. Gunnar refuses to endanger Njol's children- and then before Njal leaves, Gunnar adds a line. Do you want to read this last section? I would love to. I want to ask you one more thing. Keep an eye on my son, Hogni. So, yeah, I mean, their entire conversation is about their kids and their future. Of course, Gunnar also says that he's not asking Njal to look out for his other son, Grani, <laughs> because he's too much of a pain in the butt. Well, Hogni is his father's son, but Grani takes after his mother, Holgerth. And we're going to get more into that next time. Yeah. Uh, for now, 
Gunnar insists on acting as if his life is not in danger. He actually even continues to attend gatherings and things, but his reputation and popularity mean that his enemies never really feel confidence attacking him. You know, for a while, it looks like he's going to get away with it, even though Geezer the White declares Gunnar a fool outlaw for breaking that agreement mm. over his minor outlawry. Right. Um, so Gizur, Ger the Gothi, and Gunnar's dear cousin Morth organize a group of Gunnar's enemies and make a pact that they will all band together to kill Gunnar if the opportunity presents itself. Well, haven't they been doing that all along? But uh, Not all at once. Yeah, it's true. And Gizur and Ger haven't really been involved right. in that part. So that makes up a very impressive group. Mm-hmm. In addition to the two chieftains, Gizur and Ger, the Confederacy includes Starkov and his son Thorger, more than his father, Volger the Grey, and seven or eight other named men, each of whom pledged to bring men in support of their attack of Gunnar. Right. Now, there's only one holdout. Hjalti Skegjusen, Gizur's son-in-law, made that promise to Gunnar that he would never act against him. Yes. Right? He honors that promise and refuses to join the Confederacy. Yeah, I don't think one guy holding out is going to make a big difference, but there was that well, 24 versus 25 thing that happened right. earlier. <laughs> yeah, possibly this isn't going to make the difference, but Morth takes the job of spying on Gunnar's movements, and he keeps at that for months. He's persistent, isn't he? Doesn't he have a farm to tend to he or something? Really, I, he apparently has no hobbies, jobs, or other friends. Uh, he dedicates himself to spying on Gunnar until the following autumn, when he learns that Gunnar is at home with only his wife, Holgerth, and his mother, Ronvig, with him. Morth immediately sends word to all Gunnar's enemies, and they all gather at the border of Gunnar's property. But they have to stop there. That's right. Gunnar has a guard dog named Sjalm, which was given to him by Holger's brother, Olaf Peacock. Now, Morth knows that there's no way to sneak up on a dog. Right, now I smell a plan. Yes, you smell a plan. and Yeah, and it's a mean one. Morth <laughs> and the conspirators kidnap a nearby farmer named Thorkel, who knows Sjalm the dog and they force him to lure Sjalm away from Gunnar's mm. house at night. But when the dog sees the other men hiding in the road, he immediately bites Thorkel in the groin. Ooh, that's hard on the kibbles and bits. Yes, but uh, one of the conspirators, Onund of Trolleskog, buries his axe in the dog's head. Sjalm howls as he dies, and this howl wakes Gunnar in the house. Oh, poor pup. And at this point, Gunnar mutters to himself, You've been cruelly used, my foster child, Sjalm, and it's expected that our deaths will come close together. Right. Now, the important point here is that Gunnar's made no noise and lit no torches. So the conspirators don't actually know whether he's even at home. They have to send one of their number to go check the house, and they choose Thorgrim the Norwegian. Oh, <laughs> I mean, if you've listened to our podcast, you know why I'm laughing. <laughs> they send the Norwegian companion out first. <laughs> I, what, do they? Are they just trying to kill him off early? Possibly. Uh, oh, we mentioned God. Thorgrim earlier. He was the friend of Thor the Norwegian who killed Hjort Hamundersen and was then killed by Gunnar. That Thorgrim? The one who was told by his friend to get the hell out of Iceland and he didn't? Yeah. Yeah, the one who was told not to, under any circumstances, get involved in trying to avenge him. That's the guy. Why is he here? What's he doing here? He doesn't follow instructions well. <laughs> Obviously. I think he's <laughs> going to pay for that. Uh, oh, and he also married Guthrun Knight's son and took over the family farm after Ale and all his sons were killed by Gunnar. Okay, well, that one makes a little more sense. So how's that going for him? 
Well, it was going fine, right up until he walked up to Gunnar's front door and climbed onto the roof during an assassination attempt. Uh-huh. Oh, and I love this part. He's actually wearing a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Just like the one we've got on our website. Yeah, absolutely. Does it say Norwegian companion on it? Well, if it doesn't, it should. Uh, unsurprisingly, Gunnar aims for the center of the red shirt and thrusts his halberd out the window. Nice. Thorgrim slips off the roof, turns around, and walks back to the rest of the conspirators. And Gizur, who's waiting impatiently, says, Well, is it Gunnar at home? Uh, you'll discover that for yourselves, but I found out one thing. His halberd's definitely at home. And then he falls over dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is a long saga, but I'm not sure we're going to be able to top that for notable witticism. No, and I think if I remember correctly, this line is the origin of our desire to have a notable witticism category. That's right. (laughs) So I don't know how it doesn't win. absolutely (laughs) right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I have to say, Thorgrim also deserves a lot of style points for best bloodshed as well. I mean, he really stuck the dismount there. (laughs) (laughs) Thorgrim, we salute you. Now, meanwhile, since the element of surprise has clearly been lost, the rest of the men rush at Gunnar's farmhouse. Uh, Well, they try. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem with attacking a farmhouse in the dark when Gunnar's inside is that he's really very good with a bow. Right. No one really wants to get out in the open, so there's a lot of jumping around and ducking behind things, which right. would be kind of funny to watch. <laughs> right. um, on the other hand, Gunnar's scoring a lot of wounds on people, but in the dark, he's lucky to be hitting them at all, and he's not making many kills. Right, and he doesn't have an unlimited supply of arrows. Uh, yeah, unlike the movies. <laughs> but uh, after three failed attempts to attack the house, the conspirators are getting desperate. Morth argues for burning the house down with Gunnar inside. Mmm, prophetic. Mm-hmm. But Geezer is disgusted by this idea. That's important. So yes. instead, they use ropes to pull the entire roof off the house. Right, now that seems pretty extreme. Well, not for dealing with Gunnar. Mm. And even that doesn't help much. He just keeps popping up over the edge of his walls and shooting at them. Right. So now he's just got more spots he can shoot from. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and Morth starts arguing again that they really should burn the house down. Right, now Geezer's had it with him now, and it's hard to blame him. I don't know why you want to keep talking about something that no one else wants. That will never be. That's an important moment, obviously. The author's really drawing a line here in the sand. Mm -hmm. Burning people to death is morally unacceptable. Right, except that Morth thinks it's a great idea. Well, Morth is morally unacceptable, so... (laughs) That's a fair point. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, a brave but suicidal man... Which is a good a good moniker to have. <laughs> Thorbrand Thorlikson solves the problem by leaping up the wall and cutting Gunnar's bowstring. Mm. He gets impaled on Gunnar's halberd for his efforts, but uh, but this works. No more arrows. Right. Now, inside the house, Gunnar's situation is now desperate. Without his bow, the attackers can just rush him all at once. Mm-hmm. He comes up with a desperate plan to use human hair as a bowstring. Now, all he needs is a person with hair long enough to weave a bowstring from. And Gunnar and his mom both look expectantly at Hallgirth. <laughs> well, she's famous for her long hair, you know. Yes. She's standing right there. But she's also famous for her taste for vengeance. Especially against her husbands. And especially once those husbands have hit her. Oh, yes. And so she says, Does anything depend on you receiving my hair? My life depends on it, since they'll never be able to get at me if I have the use of my bow. 
Then I'll recall the slap you once gave me. <sighs> and I don't care whether you hold out for a long time or not. Look, I, I've read this saga a lot. And that moment every single time fills me with rage. <laughs> and Gunnar says, everyone has some mark of distinction and I won't ask you again. Yeah, that's a cold-blooded moment. Uh, so Holgrove's been nursing a grudge this entire time. And it's not surprising. That's who she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is back during the cheese stealing episode from last episode. Uh, the listeners probably remember that Gunnar slapped Holgerth when he learned that she'd stolen food from one of Gunnar's neighbors. Yeah. Uh, she'd said back then that she'd remember that slap and pay it back if she could. Given that Holgerth had been married twice before to men who were killed for slapping her, Gunnar really should have paid more attention to that threat. It's not like Hrut and Hoskell didn't warn him about this. Right. And I think that's a key point. Yeah, there have been attempts to rehabilitate Holgerth in scholarship, even to the extent of saying that she and Gunnar both know that he's doomed. So in that reading, her refusal is more an acknowledgement of that doom and her way of clearing away any debts between them. And you don't buy that for a second, I'm guessing. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that's so far-fetched. I don't buy it at all. Uh-huh. Although untreated human hair probably makes a lousy bowstring anyway. So maybe it's a moot point. I don't know if it would work. Well, and remember, they're not alone in the house. Right? Gunnar's mother, Ronvig, is there too. And when Holgerth refuses, Ronvig says, You do evil, and your infamy will be long remembered. Right. I mean, if this is meant to be a redemptive moment for Holgerth, it's pretty awkward that Gunnar's mom is dumping on her for it. Right. It's not clear to me that Holgerth's even in need of redemption. She's not a sympathetic character by any means, but she's certainly strong-willed and vengeful. In other words, she's a typical saga figure. I'm not sure we need to like her to recognize that she's a saga-worthy figure. Whether we agree with her perspective or not, she has a grievance and she takes her revenge. I agree, I think. Uh, Although, I'd want to emphasize that we're not meant to like her. Mm -hmm. This is just the culmination of a pattern that goes back to the very beginning of the saga. And it pays off a series of clues going back to the very first chapter. Right, when Holgerth's uncle Hrut said that Holgerth had thief's eyes and that many men would suffer for her beauty. Exactly. And then she's proven to be more than able to take revenge for slights against her, whether those are from her husbands, her father, or a rival like Bergthora. Holgerth is almost an elemental force of destruction in this saga. Her spitefulness toward Gunnar at this moment is entirely in keeping with her actions, and I don't see why we need to redeem her. Right, right. No, let's give her her due by despising her for the right reasons. Yes. Or by acknowledging her craftiness, I suppose, depending on your point of view. Either way, she's a consistent figure, and I think she's hardly one to weaken at a moment like this. Definitely. And I think we can reject the idea that this is a heartwarming moment between a doomed man and his loving wife. Yeah, no. Silly. Uh, For better or worse, this is Holgerth's revenge. Without his bow, Gunnar can only stab and slash wildly as he's overrun. He wounds many of his attackers before he's overrun, but he can't stop them all. And he's killed in a confusion of enemies. So many men are attacking at the last moment that none of them is entirely sure who struck the blow that killed him. That's it. The tragic hero's dead. He's finally brought down by lesser men. Mm-hmm. The author takes this moment, he breaks into the action, to share a verse about Gunnar's last stand, written by a later poet. We have heard how, in the south, the skipper of the sea steed, Gunnar, greedy for gore, guarded himself with his halberd, wielding weapons against attack. He gave wounds to sixteen of the battle-bearers and brought death to two.
Now, once the deed is done, even the attackers seem frightened of what they've achieved. Uh, Gizur says, We've laid low a great warrior. It's been hard for us, and his defense will be remembered as long as this land is lived in. Gizur also asks Gunnar's mother, Ronveig, for permission to bury the two dead attackers on the property. Mm. And her reply is that she'd be happy to oblige, and even happier to bury more of them if that were possible. <laughs> it's another in a long line of saga mothers who refuse to show weakness to their son's killers. Absolutely. Holgerth, however, doesn't offer any further comment at this point. But really, I mean, she's already done enough, hasn't right. she? <laughs> uh, and the author finishes this chapter with the pronouncement that the slaying of Gunnar was spoken badly of in all parts of the land, and his death brought great sorrow to many. Uh, once again, we have a moment that, in another saga, would be the end of the story, or at least the beginning of the end. Well, I mean, in essence, this and a few chapters from our next episode mark the end of what some readers think of as the saga of Gunnar. Mm-hmm. Right? With our next episode, we'll be launching into the saga of Njal for real, or more to the point, the saga of Njal and his sons. Yes, and I'm really looking forward to getting into that part. Right, but that's where we have to leave things for now. With Halgirth having finally taken her bitter revenge against Gunnar, with Njal mourning the loss of his best friend, and with the Sigvasins rocked by the loss of their famous nephew. Yes, and with revenge almost certainly coming soon. Oh yes, uh, this feud does not end with Gunnar's death. There's lots more blood to spill. Uh, but this has gone on long enough. We'll be back soon with part four of Njal's saga. But in the meantime, you can let us know what you think of Gunnar's heroics, Holgerth's revenge, Moore's Weasley behavior, or anything else that comes to mind. Right, now you can reach us on Twitter, where we're at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we're SagaThingPodcast. And don't forget to check us out on the blog on WordPress, where we are SagaThingPodcast. That's where you can check out a growing collection of photos of Sagathing listeners and monuments at sites celebrating Icelanders all over the world. Uh, John, did you know that uh, mm-hmm. today, this very day that we're recording this, uh, I received a photograph of Thorfinn Karlsefni sent to us by Ben, oh, who lives I know, in Philadelphia. I know you're very proud that there's one statue to Thorfinn Karlsefni. Meanwhile, we continue to get uh, statues of Leif Erikson pouring in from all over the world. Ah, whatever. But it's, you know, it's good. I'm glad you had your moment. Here's what I'll say. Uh, if you compare the Thorfinn statue to the Leif Erikson statues, I think what you'll find is the Thorfinn one, he's a lot handsomer. That's just my opinion. That's, there you go. There you go. <laughs> but Leif has a shorter skirt. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, so, yeah, just send us your pictures of yourself with saga monuments and stuff like that uh, if, you, uh, if, you, if you run mm-hmm. across one. Now, if you want your own red shirt for your own Norwegian <laughs> companion... As stylishly worn by Thorgrim the Norwegian in this episode. That's right. You can access the Saga Thing store through the blog site. And uh, we'll be back soon to tell the story of the revenge for Gunnar's death. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. nice if I were a grown-up who actually had a room to himself where he could record things. But hey, it's okay. I'm just sitting here in my dining room. (laughs) ¶¶